you would take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 6. So here's what we're going to do. I know, I know that we've prayed a lot so far, but I really feel like in order to engage this subject, we really need to pray again, okay? Father, please bless this chapter of your word to our understanding. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. Uh, your word is perfect in every way. And I pray, God, that your spirit would illuminate it to our understanding. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at our papers real quick with Genesis 6 open. Go through these foundational truths. Again, the reason why we are doing this foundational framework is because there is nothing worse than a big group of people not being on the same page. In fact, you see that happen in the book of, you might know, Judges. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And you have a problem. And the reason is, is because all the doctrines that we get into in the New Testament are properly grounded in the truths of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not a group of myths. It's not a collection of sayings or anything like that. It is actual historical truth that God is using to communicate to you and to me. And so here's some things that we have picked up on so far. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. God wants to be known. God purposely and intentionally communicates with you and me, and he does so through the word of God. Number two, God is eternal. He's always been, he always will be, he always is. He is sovereign. He has rulership, the right to rule. He is the creator. All that he creates is good. It is perfectly corresponding with who he is as God. He does not do bad things. That's important to understand. Number three, man is a responsible agent. You and I are held to a moral standard. God sets the tone. We are to respond to what he has said. He calls on us to respond to him. Number four, sin originates within a person, and sin brings about death, and death is separation from God. Death is not ceasing to exist. It is separated from him. Now, when you think about the idea of being separated from God, you might think it would probably be better to cease to exist than to be separated from him, knowing that he is there and I cannot have a relationship with him. That is the doing of our own sin and a failure to respond to him. Very important to get. So I wrote out this little review section, and here's the reason why. Yes, we're getting to chapter 6, verse 1. May seem like, well, we've only covered five chapters. Is there really a lot to review? There is in the grand scheme of it, considering the historical nature of what we're looking at. So let me read it. Man's God-given directive was to rule or to have dominion over all of God's creation. Mankind misused this responsibility, deciding to rule on a matter apart from God's command. This choice resulted in a forfeiture of rulership allowing for Satan to assume a ruling capacity in the world. The offspring of Eve that would bruise Satan's head is an immediate threat to his rulership. Therefore, Satan seeks to pollute the gene pool in order to thwart the promise of Yahweh. This entire narrative of Scripture is about God being the ruler. That's what the entire Bible is about. It's not, hold on to it, okay? It's not about go to heaven when you die. Go to heaven when you die is only one piece in the trivial pursuit pie of everything that God is doing. 
The ultimate goal of everything is God's glory. And God will be most glorified when he brings his kingdom to this earth and sets it up and establishes it in righteousness and will rule from the throne of David as he promised, keeping his word, demonstrating his power, and showing that he alone is right. Nothing else is. Everybody with me? Anybody not like that deep down? So you'd never raise your hand and admit it, would you? But there's something in us that's like, oh, he's right all the time. That gives me nowhere to go. And we all have to answer to him. We all do. And so there's something in our flesh that immediately wants to rebel against that. Yes, it's called sin, or it's called the temptation to sin, but here's ultimately what it is. It is unbelief creeping up in order to crowd out what God has said. The enemy of God is unbelief. Very important to understand. So the entire narrative of human history is about the coming reign of the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ as its rightful king to restore and reclaim what is rightfully his. This is the theme of scripture. It all goes to that point. Now let me give you just a real plain example we can see right now to show you why this is so important. Has everybody noticed that over the past 50 years or so, well, probably since World War II, and even with Hitler's motive in World War II, that the whole idea is to bring the world under one government, one rulership, one world bank, and we now have start, we start having this terminology like globalization. You heard about this? You've heard things like a new world order. President Bush first started bringing that up, right? The first President Bush. We also have things like um, interfaith dialogue. That's a fun one. Interfaith, it's where, it's where we just need to sit down with Muslims and just get along. Deep down, we all serve the same God. Do we? No. Do you know how many people are falling prey to this lie? Satan is in the church, man. And he is doing some, some dirty. I don't know what else to call it. It's dirty. He's do-dirty is who he is. And it's just bad. He is trying to take everything he possibly can to flip or cover up truth so that we will compromise. And all we have to do is compromise just a little bit. And then there's a slope that we slide down to the end. Dangerous, dangerous stuff. We live in a world that needs much discernment and especially needs an emphatic knowledge of the truth. Very much so. So with all of that said, let's go back to the origins of how all this nastiness got started, okay? Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Now pause. From what we've seen so far, when is that time? When is verse 1 taking place? Does anybody know? When men begin to multiply, and real quick, the, the, the Hebrew there is ha-adam, which is the idea of men and women began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. When did all this take place? After the fall, yes. Before the flood, yes. Okay, we got a good time period here. So we're between chapter 7 of Genesis and chapter 3 of Genesis. Anybody know? I tell you what, you might have it on the same page of the scriptures, but look back up at chapter 5, verse 30. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, here it is, and he had other sons and daughters. 
Out of those 10 generations, didn't we see where all 10 generations, after the person named, have the designation, had other sons and daughters, had other sons and daughters, had other sons and daughters. Didn't we see that over and over? You have a population explosion that is out of this world. The world is now starting to be filled up with people. So notice, that's the, that's the time. When these 10 generations were going along here, and everybody started having kids, and daughters were born to them, notice how the focus shifts to the females. Verse 2, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, they were fair, they were pleasant, they were good, they were desirable is the idea. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, does that mean that they started courting? Probably not. What was it? Was it, you know, one of the sons of God went over to the father of one of the daughters of men and said, hey, I really like your daughter. Is that how it went down? No, the text doesn't seem to convey that emotion at all, does it? Now, real quick, who are the sons of God? Angels. Everything just got weird, right? Now, how many of us immediately have objectionable thoughts to this? What in the world? Anybody? Is that, I mean, is this what we're saying? We're saying that angels are copulating with women? Is that what's going on? How many people have heard the theory that this is actually Cain's line and Seth's line and there's intermarriage going on between the two lines? Anybody ever heard that theory? Some of us have heard that theory that that's it. Why is that not true? Does anybody know? Okay, so Cain's line was rejected. He couldn't be the son of God just because it's true. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Appreciate that. So that, that might be a reason. But here's the thing. Any other time that you see the word sons of God used throughout the Old Testament, it always, always refers to angels. Job chapter 1, the sons of God came and they presented themselves before the Lord and Satan was among them. Remember that? Why would Satan be among a bunch of guys that are coming to present themselves before the Lord? Then you have it, the exact same scenario happened chapter 2. Sons of God came and presented themselves. Notice that angels are called on to repeatedly, at some point, periodically, let's say it that way, present themselves before God for a reason. Probably because they're coming to bring him worship regardless if they're fallen or not. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Just because they're demons doesn't mean anything's going to be weird about it. They're going to worship him. Uh, that's what's interesting about that. Anytime that you deal with who angels are in Scripture, they are always defined in the masculine. They are never dealt with in the feminine tense, and they're never referred to in the neuter tense, ever. They're always dealt with in the masculine. Now, we're going to see this as far as the two angels later on that appear to Abraham right before they go to Sodom and Gomorrah. It said two men were with him. Two men go into the city of Sodom. We see that constantly. Michael, we're familiar with him, right? The archangel. We're also familiar with who else? Who did the announcement to Mary? Gabriel. It always ends up being men that are representative in that. And notice they're in a certain form and fashion where people recognize them as that. Now, we're still sitting here going, how in the world did this interaction take place? Is it anything unusual whatsoever for angels, or let's not use the word angels, let's use the word demons, to inhabit people? It's possible, isn't it? It is. 
So who's to say that that's not what's going on here? Does that make sense? Now here, do we fully understand it? No, we don't. But we can try the best that we can. Notice they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Everybody see that word strive? Very interesting thing I found in my research about it. This is the Hebrew word yadan, okay? Y-A-D-A-N, if we were going to do it in English, if we're going to transliterate it in English. Yadan. And it comes from two root words. Anytime that you're dealing with the word in Hebrew or in Greek, if it's a compound word and you can break it down to its individual words, you can usually find out. Uh, repentance, metanoia, right? Means what? Change of mind is the idea. How do you know that? Put the two words together, boom, you've got it. Uh, Deuteronomy, deutero is second. Uh, namas is law. Second law, it's the second reading of the law in Scripture, those types of things. So anytime you can put those together, you see it. The root words from this could be one of two possibilities. Again, remember last week, this is real nerdy today. Did everybody have your coffee? Just making sure. I'm super jazzed about this. Nobody fall asleep, please. You will crush my soul for the week. So, but here's the thing. Anytime you're dealing with Hebrew, it has a large, wide range of semantic meaning, Okay. Context usually determines the meaning, but when you're breaking down words, possible words could make up one other word. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's what I found out. Everybody stick with me. If the root is the word din, D-I-N, what God is saying here is he will not restrain sin much longer. He's just going to let it go. He's going to stop having his hand of restraint on this. Now, that's a concept that we're familiar with from Romans chapter 1, if you've read it, where humanity falls into such sin, and remember, and God moves his hand back. He takes his hand away. It's almost like a passive wrath on people. He's not actively calling down you know, lightning in order to destroy and set people on fire or anything crazy like that in judgment. He's just letting people do what they want to do by taking his hand away and putting it in his pocket. That's the way you want to live? Great, I'll let you. Here's the consequences of your actions. That could be the meaning. However, I don't think that it is. The other root is danan, D-A-N-A-N. And it means that the spirit of life will not remain with people. The idea of striving here means it's not going to be too much longer that I'm going to let these people live. I am not going to allow a perpetual existence of sin is the idea. Now remember, sin is heinous. God takes it very seriously. Why? Because it is the only thing in existence that can separate people from God. If God's whole idea is wanting to be in relationship with you and me, the last thing he wants is sin to be in the thick of it. Why? Because sin separates. The wages of sin are what? Death. And death is separation. He knows how serious it is. He knows that it has to be dealt with. He knows that a message needs to be sent. Remember, God is a communicator, and he will use whatever necessary to get his point across so that we will get it. In fact, I think it's in mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says that the Old Testament is God's hammering process. It is him taking a hammer and trying to hammer his truth into the head of Jewish people over and over and over and over again. Anybody's noggin hurt? I often feel like that with God. You open up the scriptures at some point, you're going through all the time, you're like, why didn't I get that before? 
right? And you get all dramatic and distressed. Nobody does that? Just me. Showing my cards. Okay. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Here's the reason. Because he also is flesh. Pay attention to that. He also is flesh. What does flesh do when it's all said and done? Die. It decays. It rots. It comes to nothing. It comes to an end. That's important to keep in mind. Watch what happens here. He also is flesh. Nevertheless, or therefore, his days shall be 120 years. Now, this is very gracious of God. God is taking a survey of what's going on on the earth. It's not good. And so here's what he says. I'm going to set a time from here, 120 years into the future. That is how long people have to get away from, to stop doing, to turn around from all the sin that they're involved in, and instead to turn to me. Now remember this, you can't lose this. And if you don't see the Bible as it clearly lines out the dispensations involved, you miss this point. We are in the dispensation of conscience, okay? Real quick, take this and look on the very back, very last page. I've actually got a little line there, the dispensation of conscience, and here's what goes on. The dispensation of conscience has a responsibility. At this time, man is to live according to his conscience because he knows good and evil. Did Adam and Eve eat of the tree? Yes. Was it wrong for them to do so? Yes, but what did they gain from eating of it? A knowledge of what? Evil. That's important. They now know this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. They know that. It is knowledge that they now have. The next one, failure. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's going to be the assessment of God that we're going to see. This responsibility to live by what you know is right and wrong is going to end in failure. Judgment, Yahweh will bring a worldwide flood to destroy everything in grace. Yahweh spares Noah and his sons as well as two of every kind of animal. God is gracious in this moment because leading up to the judgment that will happen, he is giving them 120 years in order to get their act together. That is important. To respond to him and to realize everything that your conscience is testifying to that tells you what is good and right, start paying attention. Start listening. Now, we're going to see why that's important here in just a second. Everybody hang with me because you might have some questions. I think we're going to clear them all out here in just a minute. So notice it says here, verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, everything just went crazy, right? The Nephilim are the offspring of this marriage together of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Anybody here have a King James Version? Okay, your King James Version will say giants. Okay, that is actually derived from the Septuagint translation of what it was looking at. Now remember, the Septuagint translation was 
Alexander the Great had come in, dominated everything. Hellenism, this whole culture and this new way of life, had run over everything. And after a couple of generations, the only people you had who were really Hebrew-speaking in the Jewish community anymore were going to be the priests that were dealing uh, uh, with the sacrifices or those who, because they started synagogues in between the time of Malachi and Matthew as well in doing that because they had no place to worship when they were in exile. When Greek came in, a common slang Greek, couple of generations, nobody's really speaking that anymore. And so they said, we need a copy of the scriptures in our own language. So they took the 39 books of the Old Testament, put 70 or 72, it's debatable, scholars in there and translated it from Hebrew into Greek. The Greek idea of thinking, everybody familiar with the Greek gods? Everybody familiar with that? Everybody familiar with Clash of the Titans? Perseus, all that stuff. Medusa, yeah. Harry Hamlin, everybody remember that? That's all, yeah, see, I'm not so young. There you go. So notice that. When you deal with this idea of giants here, the idea Greek-wise is that they're half man and that they're half God, little g God. The idea is that they're titans is the idea. Could they have been tall? Possibly. Could they have just been regular like you and me? Maybe. But there was something about them, Notice what it says there at the end, who were of old men of renown. That means men of a bad reputation. It means they were known as the hell raisers of their day. That's the idea. They were coming in and overthrowing all kinds of a mess. They were causing problems. Now notice, verse 4 is the supernatural problem that has now taken place on earth that has thrown everything into an upheaval. You think now's bad? It's probably nothing like it was at that moment. It was probably 10 times worse than whatever we think could be possibly bad now. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of of his heart was only evil continually. Do you think that Moses gets across the point by how he says it? Notice that he is recording Yahweh's divine assessment of people. Anybody ever had an assessment at work? Hoping you get that raise, aren't you? You want a good work performance. Increase my paycheck. That's the idea. Notice here, when the world comes before God and he decides to do a divine assessment of everybody, they get a big grade of terrible, awful, horrendous. What are you guys doing? You guys, And here's the bad thing. Notice that nobody's sitting around going, well, they just didn't know. Well, nobody gave them a chance. Nobody's mothering them here. It's this whole idea of they know what is right and refuse to do it. That's what makes it worse. Moving on here, and everybody has issues with this. Verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. God is sorry. King James Version people, what does yours say? God what? Repented. Can God repent? Scripture says so. Can God repent? Change his mind. Notice that repentance is not sorrow. 
Notice that sorrow accompanies repentance. Does everybody see that? God's grieved in his heart. Notice that the scripture doesn't just say God was sorry and then leaves it at that and doesn't explain the emotion. No, no. It goes forward and look what it says. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. God is experiencing pain over what he sees. This whole idea of how we think of God often has to be corrected. This idea that he winds up the earth and just allows us to hop down through existence until we finally run out of juice and fall over? No. He is personally involved, and he is pained, and he is grieved at the extent of sin that he finds in the world. Does everybody notice that we're not talking about saved and unsaved people here? Does everybody notice that's not even in the picture? We're not even talking about lost and saved people. We're not talking about heaven and hell issues. We're talking about how people live their everyday lives on earth at this time. And it's nothing but wanting evil, craving evil, lusting after evil all the time. Now, real quick, I've got some extra notes in here for you guys to look at through all of this uh, to see. I don't want to get bogged down in it, but I do want you to research the part if you get the chance throughout the week, you're looking for something to do like a daily devotional or something. Research some of the references I gave you where it says God does not repent like a man. I want you to see that. And I want you to try to come to some kind of resolution in your mind as to why that is the way that it is. It's an important study to look at because what we find is is that number one, context matters, and number two, God is extremely personal. God is not an arm's length away. Yes, sir? Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. The way that it is, notice this, God is not saying, oh man, I shouldn't have ever created people. That's not what he's saying. It's not like he's having regret over something that he did. Like, oh, I did this and it was the wrong thing. God doesn't do wrong things. What it is, is he created this and when he left them up to themselves, and remember, this is why you have to think of it in the dispensation of conscience. Knowing good and evil and they choose nothing but evil, it causes regret. How many of you have ever gone over and over and over and over and over and over something with your kids? (laughs) And they do the same thing. And you say, I am sorry that I wasted all that breath telling you what not to do because you're going to do whatever you want to do anyway. Everybody with me? You know it. God is just like that. He is a loving father. That's one thing we have got to remember. He is not a tyrant ready to destroy people. He is gracious and he is long-suffering. Or as Pastor Steve would say, he is long-suffering with people. Long-suffering with people. And this is the position that the world has placed themselves in. Does everybody see the personal accountability here? No, no, nobody. Well, God, you just didn't let me know. Well, God, I didn't have enough information. There's no excuses here. People are one thing, guilty. God can't just let sin go. He can't brush it under the rug. 
If he did so, we couldn't trust a word that came out of his mouth. We couldn't trust him to save us for sin. Why? Because we don't need his salvation from sin. He'll just brush it under the rug and we can just move on like it never happened. Incredible. No. He has to bring it to justice. Wrong has to be dealt with. Just as we would find extreme uproar and dissatisfaction because a criminal who is plainly guilty is not brought to justice on the crimes that he committed, in the same way, God can't run that way either. He actually has a perfect justice system. Is how he deals with it. So notice it says here, verse 8, but, and I love buts in Scripture. That sounds weird. But I love whenever the Scripture says but. And here's the reason why. It because it means you were going this direction. Oh, it's looking bad. It's looking bad. But, and you get to do this. Thank the Lord for it. But, Noah found favor. Or you can write in the word there, grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, why is that? Let's do something real interesting real quick. Everybody put your finger or get your little Bible string out. Put your Bible string. Those things are handy, aren't they? Anybody got more than one Bible string in your Bible? Like you came with like six of them? Yeah, those are awesome. I was here and here and here. It's good. Put your Bible string here. Everybody turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, all the way New Testament. Let's just go for it. Second Peter chapter 2. It is. Tom, blessing us with his wisdom, said it's right after 1 Peter. That's correct. So you guys are catching on. I like it. You're kind of adopting my sense of humor. I don't think less of you. It's okay. It's good. Now, real quick, so that we get the context of what's going on and what Peter is talking about. Chapter 2, verse 1, look what it says. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So the idea is that there are false prophets and false teachers who would rise up and seek to lead people astray, okay? And what Peter wants to do is he wants to give you God's methodology of how he deals with false prophets and false teachers, okay? So now we're going to skip down to verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into, and real quick, everybody see that word hell? That is the word, anybody know? No, it's not Gehenna. It's Tartarus is what it is. T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S, I think it is, Tartarus. And here's the problem with this. Tartarus, this word right here that is translated hell, is what's known as a a hepax legomena. The idea is, is that it's the only time that this word is ever mentioned in Scripture ever in the New Testament in Greek, okay? So we don't have anything where we can do a word study. Oh, it occurs here and it occurs here and Paul uses it this way and John uses it this way. We can't do that with this word. It's just there and it's the only time it is ever used. And so from research that's gone on from this, it's believed that Tartarus is actually the worst, lowest possible place of Sheol or the lowest possible place of Hades. Hades, Greek, New Testament, Sheol, Old Testament means essentially what we understand is hell. And hell is the holding place for the undead until it comes time for the great white throne judgment where all the dead will be judged according to their works and then will be cast into the lake of fire because hell is also cast into the lake of fire. Death is also cast into the lake of fire. 
because their works did not merit salvation because they tried to get pardon in some other way besides the blood of Jesus. Everybody with me? We can talk about that later if you want to. Send me an email. Okay, that was a lot. I didn't expect to hit all that, but everybody got it. Okay, great. So now notice, verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now this is the instance that we're talking about. This is the instance, instance where we're talking about. You can actually pair this together over in 1 Peter 3, uh, angels in gloomy chains reserved in darkness until the time. Everybody remember that verse? Talking about the whole thing. He saved eight people of which Noah came through. The, okay, everybody remember that, the flood? Okay, great. The whole idea is because of this terrible sin that the sons of God committed, they were actually reserved in darkness. Some demons are allowed to roam around on the earth, go here and there, wherever they want to. But because of the sins that these demons committed in inhabiting these men and bringing about this genetic, weird, super race of people that further supernaturally corrupted the earth, they were immediately taken and they were reserved for just complete damnation with no chance of parole whatsoever. Does that make sense? Does that put it in our minds? Okay, great. So notice here. Uh, They did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but, there's our turnaround word, right? Preserved, guarded, kept watch over Noah. And notice what it says about Noah, a what? A preacher of righteousness. What was Enoch? A preacher of what? Anybody remember? He's a preacher of judgment. Notice that Noah is a preacher of righteousness. Now pause, why is this important? How many years did God give when he talked about the sin of people until he would bring about judgment? How many years? 120. If Noah is a preacher of righteousness, and yet we don't really have anything recorded of him in Genesis 6 going on that he verbally says, what does that tell you he was doing during that 120 years while he was building the ark? He was preaching. See, that's what's interesting. He was telling everybody around him that he knew would meet their physical end in death. You guys need to repent. You guys need to obey your conscience. You guys need to think about what is good, and you need to do it. Stop doing all this other messed up stuff. He is preaching it. And notice this is a continuation of Enoch preaching it before. You're all ungodly. You're all involved in ungodliness. It's wickedness. It's terrible. It's awful. Preaching, preaching, preaching. It is men standing up in an otherwise completely corrupt age and standing on the truth regardless of what people think. It was already weird that Noah had an ark in his driveway. It's it's exceedingly more weird that he is preaching to everyone about righteousness. He had a prop. That's his prop. You're still scared of the rat, aren't you? So, but he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the who? Ungodly. Is there any question about what's going on in society at the moment of Genesis 6? There's none. Let's turn back there. Now notice, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records, verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah, the Toledoth of of, of Noah. Remember, in Hebrew, Genesis is set up in a Toledoth structure. Generations, and here's some narrative. Generations, and here's some narrative. And those are known as Toledoth, okay? Don't everybody fall asleep on me. I see some of you yawning. All right, the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, just. He's innocent. He's devout. 
He is a righteous man. Now, I'm going to show you something here in a minute. It's going to mess with some of you, and some of you are going to miss it, okay? And that's why you need to listen to this later online or get a CD from Mitch. He'll make you one. Was a righteous man. Now, notice the next one. Blameless in his time. Does everybody have, if you have the NASB, notice you've got a little number one there and then probably a letter right next to it. Do you see that? Okay, look over in your margin. What does it say? Uh, with a little number one there or whatever number you have. It says literally what? Complete or perfect. Pause. Noah was perfect. Noah was righteous. Noah was complete. Noah was perfect. Does that mean Noah was sinless? No. Perfection, with the exception of God for people, never means that people are sinless. What it does mean is that their attitude, their demeanor, Every place that they are positioning themselves is in a direction that is yes and amen all the time. Does that make sense? They're always seeking to move in the right direction, even when they get messed up. Oh my gosh, I sinned. Well, it wasn't written at this time, but chances are Noah employed something like 1 John 1, 9 and continued in fellowship with the Lord. Notice that the idea of maturing in your walk is never becoming more sinless maturing in your walk is never about becoming perfect it's always about trusting and relying on god more and more and more with every step that you take noah lived by faith is the idea so notice he's righteous and he's blameless but look what it says here in his time during the time of what during the time when all this craziness was going on on the world, supernatural and natural upheaval that merited nothing but damnation <laughs> So notice it moves on here. Noah, what's the word? Walked with God. Who else walked with God? Enoch. Was Enoch delivered from the world? Notice that Noah will be as well. In fact, that's another meaning of the word salvation. Rescued. Delivered. Set free in some way. Doesn't always have to be attached to go to heaven when you die. Noah's going to experience salvation. He walks with the Lord. Now, Everybody take your Bibles here, and hopefully your string is still in the right place, or put your finger, or however you want to do that, and turn over to Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14. Would it be good for us to do like a little Bible drill the next few weeks, running through the books of the Old Testament? That'd be helpful for people. Like, no, preacher, I got tabs in my Bible, right? Tabs will save me. See, another use of salvation that doesn't have to do with go to heaven when you die. Ezekiel 14. I got a new Bible. It's taken me a while. Here we go. Now, remember, anytime that you're dealing with prophets in the Scriptures, anytime you're dealing with prophets in the Scriptures, what is significant about them is they are speaking on behalf of of God. So whatever they are saying, God has said to them or has commanded them to say. If they say something apart from that, does anybody know what the law says to do to that prophet? Stone them to death. And that means with stones, okay? Not the common vernacular we have today. Some people, you'd be surprised what some people think. Boom! Stone them to death. Done. You misspoke Yahweh. Done. So, Common scenario going on here. Israel is being disobedient. God is trying to prove a point. Ezekiel is out preaching to them. We're going to start in verse 12. And I want you to see something very interesting. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, now does everybody see how he takes on the prophetic mantle? Everybody see that? Yes? The word of the Lord? Who's asleep? Okay, just making sure. Are you guys really awake? Seriously, stop. Let's have a talk. You guys awake? Okay. There's two ways for coffee to wake you up. You drink it or I throw it on you, okay? Two ways. It'll get you one way or another. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, now notice that, unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness is what goes on in a marriage relationship, right? Notice how seriously God takes sin. And I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast. Now watch this. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, everybody see Noah, right? Were in its midst. By their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. Anybody know what that word deliver means? Salvation. Only in that way could they save themselves. Are we talking about heaven and hell here? No, we're talking about physically preserving their lives because God is going to destroy everything around them because of unfaithfulness. Now watch this. If I were to cause a wild beast to pass through the land, and they depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beast, though these three men, who? Noah, Daniel, Job, good, were in the midst, as I live, declares the Lord. They could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Or if I should bring a sword on that country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, Job, everybody following with me? Watch this. We're in its midst. As I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it. Verse 20, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They would deliver only themselves by their what? Righteousness. Pause for a second. What does this tell you about Noah? He was a righteous man. What's that look like? What does it look like for Noah to be a righteous man? I mean, we know from looking at what we saw in Peter, he, he was a preacher of righteousness. God even takes the time in speaking through someone else as a prophet to give Israel an example that they would understand. Israel, do you remember Noah and Daniel and Job? Yes, Lord, we remember him. They were righteous men. And I would destroy everything going on because of this unfaithfulness. And if they were there, they would only preserve their own lives because of their own personal righteousness. Now pause. Why would God destroy these places for their what? What is it? Un-what? Uh, not just unbelief, but what? Un unfaithfulness. Which tells you that if their personal righteousness would preserve their lives, they were what? They're faithful. They're faithful. They're faithful to God. Now, what does that look like? Turn back to Genesis 6. Let's continue. Verse 10, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Here's divine assessment number two and divine assessment number three. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. Notice personal responsibility. And behold, I am about to destroy. I'm about to ruin. I'm about to annihilate is the idea. Them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth 50 cubits its height 30 cubits anybody know what that is not just an ark it's a what it's a ship it's a what we know we didn't start using them until a little while ago about 150 years ago 100 years ago it's a barge does everybody realize that it's 300 cubits long what if we set up the the chairs here and and one equals 10 cubits we'd have 30 chairs across right and then we'd have it what is it 50 everybody look at it what's it say 50 in breadth, that's the width of it, right? 50 in the width. So notice it's it's 50 here, and then it's 50 plus 50 plus 50 plus 50 plus 50 plus 50 long. And how high is it? Only 30. Which means it, it'd be three chairs stacked tall, low to the ground, slightly wider, and really long. Does everybody realize that God is the coolest engineer ever? Do you know why? Because when the flood came, you could actually take the ark and it could be all the way up to 45 degree angle and it would naturally right itself because of the center of gravity and the way that it's made. Any engineers in here? No? In your own mind, maybe? (laughs) Seriously, get out some Lego blocks and put this together. It's interesting. It's interesting to see what he's doing here. So notice, this is how you're going to get rescued. This is how you're going to get saved out of this, Noah. Noah. This is how you're going to get taken care of. It says here, verse 16, You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to the cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower second and third decks. I have a, I have a picture on May 13th, about a week before, about two weeks before we moved, we went to the ark encounter. And, and, and it's interesting. I have, to, I have to see if I can get, uh, get it put on the computer to show you guys next week. But man, we're standing in front of it. It's really huge. And me and Beth are all cheesing. And Nathaniel is screaming like he's not going to make it on the ark. It's crazy. So it's very dangerous. We'll, we'll show it to you. But verse 17, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breadth of life. Now pause. All flesh... In which is the breath of life. Pay attention to the details and think. All flesh means who? Everybody. Is this a local flood? No. This one little bit here, before we ever even have a drop of water touch the earth, tells us plainly God's going to kill everybody. That's just how it's going to go down. It is a worldwide flood. Notice the next part. In which is the breath of life. Where did we last see that phrase? Anybody remember? When God breathed into Adam, does everybody see that God takes this personally? He gave them the gift of life. He gave them the breath of life. He has now called upon them to govern themselves by their conscience of right and wrong, and they've piddled it all away. 
They took all the goodness to the pawn shop and they came back with beans, is the idea. God is personally insulted. He's hurt. He's grieving. It says here, All flesh in which is the breath of life, from under heaven everything that is on the earth shall perish. Now, interesting first mention here, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. Anytime that you see the word covenant in Scripture, this is the first mention of the word covenant. Anytime that you see the idea of covenant, the Greek word or the Hebrew words, anybody know what it is? Barith, anybody know it? It's the idea of to cut. Uh, is the idea. Uh, anytime somebody make a covenant, they would usually have a sacrifice that goes along, and it's it's packed it in blood. This is kind of where we get the let's all you know take our switchblades out because we're all greasers and slice our hand and shake hands with one another. Yeah, cool man, that kind of thing. They're making some kind of pact here. The idea is to cut a covenant. Uh, it is to solidify it or to ratify it by blood. When we talk about this is the new covenant in my blood, it's because it's ratified. The new covenant is ratified by the blood of Jesus. Let me throw a, a little wrench in your monkey machine real quick. The new covenant is not for the church. Okay, Jeremiah 32. Somebody mess with that later. Okay, nobody digs it. Whatever. Write it down. It's interesting to look at. But notice, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark. It's a contract is what it is. I'm going to come into agreement with you. Now pause for a second. How many people here took anything like a literature class where you dealt with Greek gods and weird stuff like that, mythologies? Anybody? Anybody ever take a class on that? Okay, okay, you guys need to learn how to raise your hands. It goes like this. You guys do like the, I don't know if you're waving or what. Raise them up. Hands, did you take class? One, two, three, four, five, six. Excellent. Yes. Greek mythology. Have you ever known in any of those stories ever penned by the minds of human beings that God ever stooped down to come to an agreement with the people he ruled over? Ever? Did that ever happen? Never happens. It never happens. Everybody see how personal Yahweh is in doing this. I'm actually going to make a binding agreement with you, Noah, when you come off this ark. He says here, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wife with you and everything of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark and to keep them alive with you, they shall be male and female. I will not make any political comments. The scripture speaks for itself, right? How else would you have the filling of the earth afterwards? Of the birds, after every kind, of the animals, after their kind, every creeping thing of the ground, after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Because remember, they don't eat meat. So everything they have is fruits and vegetables, grains. That's all that they eat there. Now here is the best verse in this entire chapter. Are you ready? Thus Noah, what? Dead. Have we seen Noah say a word in this entire chapter? No, it's God speaking to Noah. And God tells him, here's what needs to happen. And Noah did it. Let that sink in for a second. Don't just bypass that. Noah did it. Look what it says. According to all that God had commanded him, so he did So I'm going to give everybody permission to do something. Close your Bibles. Because it's extremely rude and offending when I'm talking and you do it. So I'm going to give you a moment to do it now. It's one of my pet peeves. And here's what we're going to do. 
We're just going to think. Uh-oh. Close your eyes. Let's do this. I'm not going to throw anything. Don't worry. I don't have the pins up here. Some things I want you to think about real quick. Imagine you're there. You're seeing this crazy stuff go on. You're seeing not just violence across the earth. You're not just seeing people getting robbed, maimed, taken advantage of, swindled, whatever it be. It could be something as, as terrible as rape. It could be just senseless murder. Whatever it is is going on. And then you have this supernatural corruption that is accompanying it as well. And you're sitting back seeing all this stuff. And you know you from Monday to Saturday. Would you be in line to get on the ark or would you be left in the world? Notice I'm not asking you if you know Jesus or not. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way that we live our lives outside of these four walls. Would it be one where God would look upon us favorably? Notice that God doesn't look favorably on Noah and then he's obedient. Notice it's because the whole world was going to hell in a handbasket. And Noah stepped back and looked at all of it and said, No, I will not be part of this. I will not participate in this. You will not find me having fellowship with evil. He was a preacher of righteousness. He held fast to God no matter what. That's a good question to answer. Second question I want you to answer is, do you sin too easily? See, here's the amazing thing about people governing themselves by their conscience. It became nothing to sin. They were sinning. Friends were sinning. Family was sinning. And it just became one of those things that we kind of accept. We often see that today veiled in the, in the expression, a little white lie. It's just a little white lie. It's not a big deal. It's sin. Do you find that maybe you don't struggle against sin? Or do you find that regardless of who God has revealed Himself to be, and regardless of who He says that He is and who He has proved Himself to be, you still have no regard for Him. Does God matter? outside of these walls, outside of how much knowledge we could get about the Bible, when it comes time to making the hard choice but the right choice, when it comes time to raising your kids, when it comes time to giving that counsel to your grandkids, when it comes time to whether or not you're going to fill in that extra bracket on your taxes, when it comes to whatever you're doing on Saturday night and nobody has to know about it on Sunday morning, does God matter? Does God matter? Because he mattered to Enoch, and Enoch walked with God. It mattered to Noah, and Noah walked with God. Father, I pray that our hearts would ponder upon the life of Noah. We just seem to be getting started, but the world is in a corrupt place. We look at the world now, it doesn't seem much different. Father, forgive us where we're participators with the world, reacting as the world does, thinking like the world does, taking up the things that the world values. 
Father, keep us from those things. Keep us from raising up idols. Keep us from esteeming material things more important than yourself. Father, focus our minds, our hearts, our attention, the very core of our beings on who you are. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed and help us to realize that your arms stand open to renew us in fellowship with you. May we confess that wrong if we have it. It's in Jesus' name, amen.